All right, let's pray as we, as we begin. God, we come before you, thankful that we can be once again in your house with believers, where we can pray together, worship together, um, and I just pray now, as we begin this message, that you would speak your message through um, a flawed preacher. I pray for the hearts of everyone in here, from the littles that we have with us this week, um, all the way up to those of us who are not so young and not so little anymore. May you um, shape our hearts, conform us more into your image, um, give us the gift of faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Have you ever been afraid that you might lose a loved one who is close to you? So for parents, have you ever been afraid of losing a child? Or perhaps you have lost a child. Three weeks ago, I was at the gym um, talking with a workout partner, um, and they, you know, he looked a little off, and I said, you know, how are you doing? You all right? And he just said, I just saw a car wreck um, on 34, and there had to have been at least a couple fatalities. And he just said, I'm having a hard time focusing after that. So this conversation led um, to more conversations, and it's a guy that I don't know very well. Eventually, he told me that about a decade ago, he'd lost his eight-year-old daughter at the time. Um, he'd lost her to cancer. And so I just, getting to know this guy, I said, so how'd you, how'd you get through that? And he just said, man, I didn't. You, you never really do. Um, this last week, so just three days ago, I spoke with a friend who had just lost her daughter's boyfriend in a car accident. And her question to me is, um, and was, why would God give you this perfect, beautiful baby and then allow such a good kid, this 18-year-old um, man, why would God give you this perfect baby and allow them to die in such a horrible way? In that same cycle of events, a couple days later, um, her stepdad died unexpectedly. She says, wow. We spoke for quite a while. We prayed together. Um, and maybe she'll be here with us sometime in the future. I don't know. So some of you, as I recount those events, just from pretty recently, um, conversations I've had, some of you are remembering losses or near losses the recollection of the fear, the grieving, um, and then for many of us, the peace that God brings regardless of the outcome, or perhaps the lack of peace and the hole that still exists in our life from the death of a loved one. And some of us have experienced miraculous rescues in these situations. We're going to read about something like that today in this text. My coworker, though distraught, she told me, you know, there is something good out of this. You know, because he was such a healthy young man, um, seven of his organs were able to be donated to other people. So that's a healing balm, but it doesn't, of course, it does not replace um, the hole that that person has left in the life of uh, their loved ones. Many of you, many of us, have experienced loss, death, miscarriages, and in this broken world, we have homicide, suicide, cancer, accidents, war, uh, the list goes on. So, what a way to start a sermon. 
Um, I admit that I'm frustrated by those situations. And I don't have, this morning, I don't have like a manufactured, silver-bulleted platitude, something that's going to just fix all of that. Not for me. But the context of our text today is this imminent loss of life. We're going to read about this man who comes to Jesus with just desperation for his son to live. Desperation for the rescue of his child before he's gone forever. So, it's with this in mind that we can feel with this person who comes to Jesus and says, come down and heal my son, for he is about to die. And when I um, think back on when I came to Christ 17 years ago, which makes me feel a little old, um, I remember my desperate plea was selfishly motivated. I wanted to be free from the shame and guilt of my despicable actions that I'd committed all on my own. I wasn't a victim. I was just a sinner who sensed the wrath of God on my actions, and I was desperate to be rescued from those consequences. And God was gracious to meet me where I was at. I was not seeking to be part of his kingdom's advance on the darkness that corrupts this world. I certainly was not burdened by the people in this world who also needed rescue from their sins and their need to be shown the futility of the world's sources of satisfaction. And I was not overwhelmed by God's goodness to the world and his ownership and beauty and his sovereign orchestration of all things for his own glory. None of that. Nope. I was just desperate and afraid of a holy God who I had offended and terrified, knowing that all my trying was insufficient to make up for my crimes. So, God met me in this brokenness as a sobbing 18-year-old, and he took away the shame and the guilt that I justly deserved, and he's even used that story in the lives of others, and that is his work. It's not mine. So what does God have to say to people like this official that we're going to read about today? What does he have to say to people like you and me who come to God with desperation but with our own agenda, what we want him to do, what we want him to fix? And specifically, we often come with instructions for how we want God to go about fixing all of our issues. What does God have to say about losing children? So let's read from our text this morning. We're at the end of John 4. So look in verse 46. I'm going to read um, this relatively short passage. We're moving through the Gospel of John, as you know, if you've been here for a few weeks or a few months, moving through the Gospel of John. So we're at the last part of John 4. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water, wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, 
At the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. So this is now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judah to Galilee. So what does God have to say to us in the midst of this world, in the midst of this tension of brokenness and um, near death, imminent death? So I have three, three points if you're taking notes. Um, the first one, Jesus offers hope without discrimination. So we have seen this. We saw this back in Acts last year as we preached through the book of Acts. We see this here in the beginning of John. Jesus offers hope to all people. And in the way that he chooses to offer hope, that he approaches people is without discrimination. He selects his people in his own way. Just in these first four chapters of John, we've seen Jesus go to a diverse group of disciples, a tax collector, um, one of them a physician, fishermen, a zealot, um, a pretty eclectic group. And then he continues. In John chapter 3, a couple weeks ago we preached through this, Jesus goes to this, um, he has this interaction with this religious elite person, Nicodemus. And then in John chapter 4, where we were a couple weeks ago, we see Jesus introduce himself, approach this social, religious, ethnic outcast, this woman from Samaria. Extremes. Jesus goes to all people. And as we keep reading in these gospel accounts and into the book of Acts, we see that he goes to adulterers and thieves, murderers, Roman soldiers, both the wealthy and the poor, the demon-possessed, and that list continues all the way to us today. You who believe, who are here today, an eclectic group of people, because Jesus does not discriminate. What's interesting, though, is that that is so unlike us. We love our people. We love those who are like us, who we have commonality with, in hobbies, habits, personality, age, certainly politics, occupations. We humans are really cliquish, and we really like to be comfortable. Jesus, however, has left the comfort of his heavenly glory as we read him coming down to earth. He is in the discomfort of hunger and brokenness, of sickness, conflict, misunderstanding, ignorance, and even death in order to reconcile humans and all of creation back to the Creator. He does not discriminate. Number two, God will not be mocked or manipulated. When we do or say things, God knows our heart, and he will not be mocked. That's from Galatians 6, 7. So Jesus sees the thirst of this woman at the well, and he also sees the desperation of this official who comes to Jesus. But he also sees the hearts of the people in these gospel accounts, the people who follow him just for his signs and wonders and miracles. Some of them treat Jesus' signs like a circus act, something that they can see that's impressive, and he knows all that. Nothing is hidden from him. So John 2, 23, from a few weeks ago. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people 
and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then in John 6, a few weeks into the future for us, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He perceives their motivations, their heart, why they are coming to Jesus. Jesus is the word of God, this logos of God. He is the expression of truth, and he will not be tainted with falsehood. What this means is that he cannot be manipulated or tricked into doing something he doesn't intend to do. So God does not accept the falsehood of our candy machine theology. Have you ever heard of that? Where we think that it's like a vending machine. If we can put the right things in, the right prayers, the right tithes, the right actions, um, not yelling at my kids too much, all that stuff. Um, If I put that in, then I will get the promised blank, what I expect from God. But God is not to be manipulated. So remember that the primary tool of the enemy is deception. It is not the warlike terror of um, the Antichrist that should be our primary, primary concern. It's not persecution from a corrupt government. Um, it's deception. From the garden, where the snake deceived Eve, all the way to the end of the age, the primary tool of the enemy is deception. And that is the antithesis of truth, of what Jesus stands for. The deception is manifested in unbelief. So when Jesus sees this man come to him, begging to have his son healed, Jesus knows his heart, he knows his motivation, he knows his capacity to believe, and he performs a sign to bring this man to that place of belief. Jesus performs signs to authenticate his ministry and his identity, but he says, blessed are those who do not need a sign. John 20, 29, at the end of this book, At the end of John's account, Jesus said to him, he's talking to Thomas here, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So, one, Jesus offers hope without discrimination. Two, God will not be mocked or manipulated. And three, Jesus offers and accepts only genuine faith. So he addresses this group with his response to the official in John um, 4, verse 48. When you look at this, Jesus said to him, he responds to this official, and then he speaks in plural to the group that's around them. And he says, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official responds in verse 49 with a repeat request for help for his son, And Jesus responds to him individually and says, Go, your son will live. And he gives him not just the life of his son, but as we see in a moment, the sign results in the official's faith in Jesus, which is extended to his entire household. So as we read earlier, the man responds in genuine faith that his son will be healed, and he goes home. But as you're trying to put this together with the seventh hour and his, road back to, uh, his trip on the road back to Capernaum, the timing isn't really clear, and the way it lines out seems to indicate that he wasn't in a hurry to get back home. 
He was probably in a really big hurry to get to Jesus when he heard that he was in Cana, but he was not in a hurry to return. And so it's the following day when he meets his servants on the road, and he says, when did he get better? And they tell him, and he puts it together, oh yeah, that's right when Jesus said that he would be healed. The flow and the context implies that his belief that is stated again, he himself believed and all his household, is different than just believing that God did a work by saving his son. This belief is the belief that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the rescuer of the world. God met this man in his desperation and gave him both the life of his son and, more importantly, genuine faith that even influenced his whole family to believe. So, what does this mean for us? As application today, I have um, three more points, three things to write down. The first is probably really obvious. Believe. If you don't yet believe, believe. This isn't a con. This isn't manipulation. Jesus is the king of the world, and he deserves our allegiance, not based on what we can bring him, um, not because he's trying to get something from us. He simply deserves our faith because he is the expression of truth and the ultimate authority in the cosmos. Regardless of your background, we got kids in here with us today. Um, If you're a young person who's grown up in this church um, over the last couple of years, and you have questions about genuine faith. If you're a visitor, if you're somebody who's new to the faith, um, every person, almost every person in this room would be happy to speak to you about that. But here's what cannot be missed in this text. This man comes in desperation, asking that his son be saved. Jesus, the divine son of God, knows that in order for the man's son to really be given life, God's son has to die. And that is not an incidental parallel. The official's son is given life because God's son was humbled to death. Jesus knows that he's going to be killed and that his life will atone for his people. It is not ironic or accidental that he tells this man, your son will live. And as we look at this text through the lens of that atonement, through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we can finish the thought, your son will live because God's son will die. So believe. Number two, worship. Out of belief flows worship. When you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, the Savior of the world, the King of all creation, who humbled himself to walk in brokenness that we humans created then rescued us out of the consequences of our sin. Because God, will not be, because God will not be mocked, the consequence of sin is death. We are compelled to worship him who endured that death, who died in that horrible way for us. He deserves all worship forever. At the end of the New Testament, Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain 
and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worship. And then thirdly, making disciples. Somewhat predictable. And in the text, we see this man come from a belief that his son will be healed, then to belief in Jesus, and eventually that pours out to his whole household. So as we consider our mission in this world, we reflect on this progression of belief to worship to disciple-making. And as you have probably heard, if you're listening at the very beginning, which I know sometimes it's tough because we're all still like quieting down and finding our seats, our mission here is to make, mobilize, and multiply disciples of Jesus. So listen to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, and Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So make disciples. We ought to be making disciples out of those who are not yet disciples. Ephesians 2 talks about taking children of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light. So our desire here at Redemption is not, actually, to bring people into these doors from other churches by um, offering a better facility and better programs that are curated to everybody's interests. And if you know us, um, hopefully not in a, like, critical way, but we're pretty unapologetic about that. Um, meeting in a cafeteria for the last couple months have, has some, has some uh, filtering benefits, so you can hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> we want to make disciples out of people who are not yet disciples. We are not on the hunt for church attenders and tithers. Make disciples. Mobilize. We want to take disciples and teach them and help mobilize them for the work of God's kingdom. Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Not just teaching people about what Scripture says, like, a, um, like just a resource or an intellectual thing, but teaching them to actually obey, to observe what Jesus has commanded. And in this process of teaching and mobilizing disciples for God's kingdom results in their obedience to his commands, to share the gospel in this world. And that's the result of what a healthy family does. A healthy family multiplies. The young boys grow up to be men. The young girls grow up to be women. They go out, they find partners in life, and they have children, and they grow. They get stronger, they grow in number. That's a picture of health. God's church is growing, and Jesus is on the throne, and the gates of hell will not stand against the onslaught of his kingdom's advances. Jesus, in the atonement, blew the doors off of hell, and he is the reigning king who is rescuing people from the kingdom of darkness. So looking back on this text and this man's desperation, church, for us today as a culture, as a group, May we not hang on to our desperate needs and our list of wants of what we want God to do for us. Let's release those desires, despite the pain that discomfort might be causing us, 
Um, Let's embrace his mission. But let us hang on to the desperation we have for God, for the living water that only he can give. Let's release the agenda, our list of what we want him to do, those specifics, but retain our desperation, our dependence on him. Let's pray. God, please forgive our lack of desperation when we come to you with agenda and expectation. You know our deepest needs, and you are gracious and kind to sanctify us more into your image. You know what we are capable of. Your kindness is evident in many ways, most chiefly in your sacrificing your child for us. Please give us hearts that believe you, believe truth. Help us to abide in you, the source of life, for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.